Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for being here tonight. Uh, my name is Inas Hanso. I'm a professor of Arabic literature at the American University of Beirut, but I'm also a member of the Library of Arabic Literature here at NYU Abu Dhabi with a project that started 10 years ago um, supported and funded by Tim Keane and were published by uh, NYU Press. And over the 10 years of uh, the library here at NYU Abu Dhabi, we've encouraged scholars from all over the world in the field of Arabic literature to produce authoritative uh, editions in Arabic that we put online and they're free for everyone to download and use and also translations. And this comes from the deep commitment to understanding Arabic literature as part of world literature and to making it available to everyone. We also have an advantage in producing what we call the blue books, which is the Arabic-English translation. Uh, and that is very helpful for readers and also for researchers. And uh, please visit our website for more and download our books and follow what we do. Today, I'm very pleased to be introducing Yasmin Seal. Um, Yasmin, I just today realized that you're Syrian too. <laughs> Yasmin is a British Syrian translator, artist, and writer. And uh, today, she'll be speaking about uh, her new translation project of Tawq al-Hamama by Ibn Hazm. Ibn Hazm was a scholar from Cordoba at a very interesting period in Al-Andalus. It was a transition of three centuries of centralized rule in uh, Umayyad al-Andalus coming to an end, and a period that we call al-Fitna, where so many scholars were displaced or lost their lives. Ibn Hazm himself had to leave Cordoba. His uh, home that he grew up in was burnt. He lost his father, and he, was, he found in, uh, himself in prison several times. And he ended up being semi-exiled, and we stopped hearing his personal, uh, like we don't have more biographical um, news about what happened to him in his last 20 years. But Yasmin will tell us more about this early work that he wrote when he was 32. And uh, this work at the time was not very popular. And actually, we know that it wasn't popular in the centuries following its writing. Uh, that's why we only have one manuscript that survived, and it survived in the East um, about four centuries later. Uh, but since it's been, uh, you know, uh, part of the public uh, imagination until today, many artists, many translators engaged with it. We have. Uh, the work has been translated to 10 different languages. In Arabic alone, I tried to count all the editions in Arabic. There are probably over 30. Uh, 10 of them we can consider scholarly. And one just uh, appeared two years ago in Damascus. So it's a very popular work. There are uh, in Syria, I think right before uh, 2011, it was the most... Uh, read book 
in Syria. Someone did that at the book fair, and it was the most sold book. This is an unusual book for a jurist to be writing about love, but it's also something that Yasmin will tell you more about. And uh, it actually is very interesting uh, that uh, it's coming in a new translation. And this is something that Yasmin has done recently with her translation of the Arabian Nights. And with that translation, I think you uh, mentioned that you're the first beardless person to translate the Nights. But what's most uh, urgent about this is that there is a whole new conversation coming around these new translations of what happens to the classics when they're translated with this new vision by women and also uh, bringing into the translation the creativity and the context of how they were produced in the first place. Uh, so, Yasmin, thank you again for being here. Usually this annual lecture is scholarly, but we're extremely happy because you're bringing your art and your scholarly eye into this uh, wonderful text. Please join me in welcoming Yasmin. Thank you so much, Ines. Thank you all for coming. Can you hear me all right? I'm going to talk about something in progress, something unfinished, something whose final shape I'm still searching for. But I hope to make up for it with excitement, the excitement of discovery, of beginnings, the excitement of being in the middle of things, which has something in common with the excitement of being in love. Love is my subject, the subject of the work I'm translating, a work, I should say, I didn't choose. It was entrusted to me by the wonderful people of the Library of Arabic Literature, which, as you all know, and as Inas reminded us, has for the last 10 years been doing extraordinary work, producing lively, accessible English translations of significant works of Arabic poetry and prose, as well as meticulously edited recensions of the Arabic texts themselves. This decade of work, ambitious, imaginative, painstaking work, has quite simply transformed the field and introduced a new generation of readers to some of the gems in the treasure house that is the Arabic literary tradition. I realize I'm mainly addressing the board here, but these things bear repeating. It's been my great pleasure to work with Lal on a couple of projects already. I'll briefly mention one since I was only very tangentially involved, and in case anyone isn't aware, last year Lal published a fabulous book called The Book of Travels, beautifully translated by Elias Mohanna. It's a memoir by a young Syrian man from Aleppo who traveled to Paris in the early 18th century. And this is the story of his adventures around the Mediterranean. It's a description of Europe and particularly France where he lives for three years, where he's introduced to King Louis XIV and where he ends up making a remarkable contribution to literature. 
In fact, its author, Hanna Diab, has been described as the most influential storyteller whose name we know. It's to him, for example, that we owe the story of Alibaba and also Aladdin, which appears at times to be based on his own life. A second Lal project I've been involved with, this time as a translator, is one that's very close to my heart. It's a translation of the poems of Al-Khansat, perhaps the most celebrated and influential woman in the Arabic literary tradition, who in seventh century Najd composed about 40 poems mourning her brothers lost in battle, 40 variations on a song of loss. I had recently embarked on this work when a few months ago, I got a call asking me to put down tools and to turn instead to something else. Commissions for a translator are a bit like arranged marriages. You're introduced to a writer, one you may not have met before, and told that you're now going to live together, that your names will be joined, your very thoughts will blend together, and that in time you will come to know this writer's words better than you know your own, better than they may have known themselves. This particular marriage, this commission, seemed an unlikely match. I knew the author, Ibn Hazm, or to give his full name, Abu Muhammad Ali Ibn Ahmad, Ibn Sa'id Ibn Hazm al-Andalusi, by his reputation as a rather strict and difficult theologian. I knew he was a thousand years old. I knew he was always attacking his enemies and that he favored literal interpretations of scripture. But I also knew that as a young man, he had written a book about love. Tawq al-Hamama, or the dove's necklace, or the ring of the dove as it's sometimes called, and I'll come back to the title, which came to be regarded as one of the most subtle, refined, and perceptive works in Arabic literature. I said yes. We signed a contract. By Valentine's Day, we should have no more secrets from each other. At this point, I'd like to thank in particular Shaukat Turawa for your initiative and your support, which has meant the world to me. And to thank Chip Prezetti, James Montgomery, Inas Khansa for having been, even in these early stages, such generous collaborators and conversationalists. It's my honor to be working with you. It's my great honor also to have taken over this project from the person it was first entrusted to. Humphrey Davis, to my mind the finest, the most original Arabic translator of his generation, was translating the Tawq when he died rather suddenly just over a year ago. It's a terrifying thrill to be set, stepping into his shoes. Ibn Hazm was known in Arabic as the Andalusian, meaning from Al-Andalus, which as you all know is how we refer to the period of Muslim rule in the Iberian Peninsula, beginning in the early eighth century and lasting all the way until 1492, but it's really in its prime in the eighth, ninth, and 10th centuries under the rule of the Umayyad Caliphate, which had its capital in Cordoba. This is what the Caliphate looked like around the time of Ibn Hazm's birth in 994. Cordoba is the black star in the south. 
here you see that the name Andalus is a bit misleading because really this family, the Umayyads, ruled over the whole peninsula to varying degrees. The shades of green refer to degrees of control and a large swathe of North Africa as well. Now, these rulers, the Umayyads, had come to Spain from Damascus, where they had held power almost since the beginning of Islam. I'm trying not to think too hard about how some of the leading historians of this period are in this room. The Umayyads were from the family of the Prophet. They were, in fact, initially opposed to the new religion um, in the early 7th century, but they came round, and within a few decades, they were governing the young Muslim empire from Damascus and oversaw its expansion so that by the 8th century, they ruled over an empire which stretched from India to the Atlantic. In 750, the Umayyads were deposed by a rival branch of the Prophet's family, what became known as the Abbasid dynasty, who seized power, and all the men of the Umayyad clan were slaughtered except for one prince, who escaped to Spain, which at the time was the wild west of this vast Muslim empire. And there he reestablished a caliphate and really tried to recreate there the Damascus that he had left behind. Through architecture, through gardens, through the arts, Cordoba, the capital, became one of the most vibrant and sophisticated cities of its age. A rival to Baghdad, which the Abbasids had created in the East as their capital. In the ninth and 10th centuries, artists, musicians, intellectuals flocked to Cordoba from all over the Mediterranean and Africa. New art forms appeared, new musical forms, new ways of living. Women were more visible in public life, performing music, composing poetry. Let me digress for a moment to mention a separate personal project on women poets and musicians around the year 1000, I thought I would read you one poem to give you a flavor of the vitality and almost aggressive boldness that distinguishes women's poetry at this time. This is a poem by someone called Aisha al-Qurtubiya, Aisha of Cordoba. It's a response to a marriage proposal from an older poet. I am a lioness. Never will I let my being be the break on another's journey. But if that were my choice, I would not answer to a dog, for to oh, how many lions am I deaf? She never married. This is the sort of thing that was being written in Cordoba around the time Ibn Hazm was growing up. He was born in the capital at the apogee of Umayyad rule. He grows up in the palace because his father is a minister working for the caliph and for the caliph's advisor, Al-Mansur, who is the de facto ruler, who led many victorious campaigns against Christian forces and ended up taking Santiago de Compostela in the north. Um, so Ibn Hazm grows up in the heart of the heart of the caliphate very close to the center of power, and seems to have had a happy, peaceful, and rather opulent childhood. 
when he's about 15, this world disintegrates. A civil war breaks out that would last 22 years. The Umayyad dynasty, which had reigned over Iberia for nearly 300 years, suddenly collapses. The caliphate, which is to say all of Iberia and a stretch of North Africa, breaks down into about 30 principalities called taifas, tawaifs, little kingdoms. Ibn Hazm experiences this as a terribly painful and damaging development. He witnesses, to his mind, the beginning of the self-destruction of Muslim Spain. He's expelled from his home. His father is imprisoned. He has to leave Cordoba. For a while, he works unsuccessfully to try and restore Umayyad sovereignty. It doesn't work. He goes into exile to a place called Khativa in the east, close to Valencia. At this point, he's exactly my age. He's about 32. And in his exile, he writes a book. This is the title page of the only manuscript that, as far as we know, exists of Tawq al-Hamama. It's a copy made in 14th century Syria, the work of an apparently unnamed scribe. The colophon, the scribe's statement at the end, tells us that the manuscript was completed at the new moon of the month of Rajab in the year 738, or January 1338. The copyist also tells us that he has abbreviated the text. He has left out most of the poems, retaining only the best. In the mid-17th century, this manuscript was bought in Constantinople by a Dutch diplomat called Levinus Warner, who spent about 20 years in Istanbul, where he acquired uh, hundreds of manuscripts, mainly in Arabic. One of the jewels of his collection was this unique copy of Tawq al-Hamama. Warner died in 1665, leaving the manuscript and the rest of his collection to the University of Leiden, where it's been ever since. It's a rather idiosyncratic copy, and as the scribe himself tells us, an incomplete one. But it's the only one we have. This book, which may be the greatest work of Andalusian literature, almost disappeared, which of course only adds to the excitement. The full title here is Kitab Fihi Risala Al Marufa Bitawq Al Hamama Fil Ulfati Wal Ullaf. The book in which is contained a letter or an epistle known as Tawq Al Hamama, the dove's necklace, on love and lovers, or feeling and those who feel. Tawq Al Hamama is a rather mysterious title. Its relation to the content of the work is somewhat unclear. The word tawq is wonderfully double-edged. It refers to something worn around the neck, both to embellish it and to constrain it. It might be both the necklace and the noose. It can also be the neck itself. It can be used metaphorically to mean something troublesome, difficult, inconvenient. Tawaqtuhu shay'. I imposed on him something as though it were his neck ring. It's in the Quran once, I believe, in Surah Al-Imran, verse 180. 
سَيُتَوَقُونَ مَا بَخِلُوا بِهِ يَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ The object of their greed shall be a leash around their necks, or whatever they withheld will be a halter around their necks, or they will be collared with what they used to hoard. A toq can also be something worn with pride, as the turtle dove wears the mantle of black feathers at its nape. I wanted to show you a picture of turtle doves courting, but I forgot to include it, so you'll have to imagine it. Um, I bore the favor as the ring of the dove, meaning as a badge or decoration. So this title might also be translated as the dove's collar, the collar being the instrument of control, but also the symbol of fidelity, of having been mastered, domesticated. We might even say the dove's choker, a choker being both ornament and suffocation, a source of embellishment and a source of pain. The work is called a risala because the book presents itself as a response to a letter. The introduction is addressed to an unnamed friend. Ibn Hazm says, I received your letter from Almeria in which you ask me to write something about the nature of love and I have granted your wish. So the book itself was written under commission, or at least that's the conceit. Aside from its title, there is very little that is conventional about this book. It's not the first Arabic text on love, but it's quite a striking departure from tradition. There is a long tradition of writing about love in a stylized way, with stock images and motifs, and often with reference to the famous lovers of antiquity, the star-crossed lovers of ancient Arabia, so that even poets writing in cities centuries later would draw their imagery from the desert, an environment they had never known. Ibn Hazm breaks with this. In the introduction, he apologizes to his friend for leaving out anecdotes about Bedouins and ancestors, because he says, their way is different from our way. He says, I don't lean against another person's horse. I don't wear borrowed jewels. This is a book about his own society, a profoundly urban world of houses with courtyards and private rooms and bustling streets where gossip is exchanged and glances stolen and hearts broken. Men and women tend to live separately, which only creates an obstacle to be overcome. And the book is a kind of catalog of ways of overcoming these obstacles. It's composed of 30 beautifully observed and often witty chapters on the signs and causes and symptoms of love. I'll read you a brief section from my translation in progress from a chapter called On Falling in Love from a Description. One of the strangest origins of love is when a person falls in love with someone they have heard described but never seen. This can blossom into true devotion, complete with note swapping and letter writing, anxiety and rapture, sleepless nights, without sight ever intervening. Stories, the listing of qualities, the outline of a life are enough to leave a clear impression on the soul. Even a voice singing behind a wall 
may occasion love and haunt the mind. I have described this in verse. O oh, you who roll your eyes at me for loving without sight, you go too far, you are unfair to call my loving slight. What do you know of paradise but paradise described? I think this is the best argument for online dating that I've ever seen. As you see, the text is a combination of prose and poetry, where the poems usually illustrate or dramatize the arguments made in prose. This book collects most of Ibn Hazm's poetry, which he stopped writing later in life. Once he'd become a serious theologian, he considered it frivolous. So the dove's necklace is, among other things, the archive of his poetic life. It's a combination in other ways, too. It's a philosophical essay that sets out to be systematic, but is always being seduced by digressions and memories and bits of gossip. It's as if he's proposing another way of doing philosophy. What he has to say about love comes from his own observations. Perception by the senses is the principal route to knowledge, and he includes all the senses. Most movingly to me, it's also perhaps unwittingly a portrait of a world that's coming to an end. I think that by the time Ibn Hazm writes this book, he has lost hope in his cause, the cause of restoring Umayyad power and the unity of Al-Andalus. So parts of the book read like an elegy to this disappearing world. I'll read you another section from a chapter called On Falling in Love at First Sight. Our friend, Abu Bakr Muhammad bin Ahmad bin Ishaq, told me that he had heard from a trustworthy source whose name escapes me, I think it was the judge Ibn al-Hadda, that Yusuf bin Harun, the poet known as al-Ramadi, was passing the gate of perfumers in Cordoba, a place where women like to meet, when he caught sight of a young slave girl who captured his whole heart. All his limbs filled with love. He left the road to the mosque and began to follow her up to the bridge. She crossed it and came to the place known as the Edge. And when she stood among the mausolea of the caliphs, God have mercy on them, built over their graves in the cemetery of the Edge on the far side of the river, she saw him there, alone, pursuing only her. She moved towards him and said, Why do you walk behind me? He told her of the agitation she had stirred in him. Get over it, she said, and do not bring disgrace on me. There is no use in trying. You will not get what you want. Then I will be content with looking. That is permitted, she said. Then he said, My lady, are you free or a slave? A slave, she said. What is your name? Khalwa, which means seclusion or solitude. And to whom do you belong? To this, she said, You will sooner know the contents of the seventh heaven than the answer to that question, so quit dreaming. And he said, My lady, when will I see you again? Where you saw me today, she said, every Friday around the same time. Then she said, Will you go or shall I? You go, he said, and God be with you. So she went off toward the bridge, and he could not follow her as she kept turning round to see if he was on her heels. And when she passed the gate of the bridge, he went that way but could see no trace of her. 
And since that day, said the poet, I have haunted the gate of perfumers and the edge without ever finding news of her. And I cannot say whether it was the heavens that consumed her or the earth that swallowed her up, but what remains of her in my heart burns hotter than coals. This is the Khalwa for whom he wrote his love poems. Later, he heard something about her on a trip to Saragossa, which he made on her account, but that is a long story. There is so much to say about this passage, about the role of women in this society. I think there is something of Aisha's boldness and wit in Khalwa's repartee about public life, about slavery, about poets, about what we might call the emotional geography of the city. Testimony here is also important. Ibn Hazm constantly points out that he's been told particular facts by particular people. The chain of authorities, known as Isnad, usually used to prop up the credibility of stories about the Prophet, is applied here to a, a piece of gossip about a man in love. I'm going to read us uh, a lot from a longer section, but first I'll say something about translation. As far as I know, there are two previous English translations of this work, one by someone called A.R. Nickel, N-Y-K-L, a Czech polyglot working in the 1930s, and the other by A.J. AJ Arbery um, in Cambridge in the 1950s. Both, I think, give the text a flavor which even in their own time was strangely antiquated, as if writing like a Victorian brought us any closer to 11th century Andalusia. I've tried to work against this tendency. I think all texts, however remote from us, can and should be translated into living language. After all, a translation published in 2022 will become part of the literature written in English in 2022 and will be read alongside it. A modern idiom seems to me all the more suitable in the case of this book, the work of a young man writing about contemporary life. I'll also say a quick word about the style. Talq al-Hamama, like many works of classical Arabic, combines prose and verse and something in between. Writing that, while being unlineated, has the texture and rhythm of poetry. I've tried to be attentive to these shifting registers, to the poetics in the prose. I've tried to translate the text's sonic atmosphere as much as its sense, the orchestration as much as the lyrics. I'll give you one small example. In the passage I'm about to read, there's a description of the eye and the soul. We're told that the eye is the soul's wide gate. Minor of its secrets, voice of its far corners, envoy of its depths. In Arabic, al-munaqiba an sara'iriha, wal-mu'abbira lidama'iriha, wal-mu'arriba an bawatiniha. The Arabic line, a typical piece of seja, this kind of poetic prose, is composed of triplets, three rhyming phrases, which respond to each other in terms of both meaning and prosody. The effect is one of musical variations, a theme repeated and amplified. I've tried to give the English line a similar patterning of rhythm 
and to convey the echo between mu'arriba and mu'abbira with the shift from voice to envoy. As to the poetry, it takes many forms. Ibn Hazm boasts of his virtuosity and range as a poet. For this reason, I have sought to vary the forms in English, allowing for the different conventions and resources peculiar to each language. I'll close with a reading from the beginning of the chapter called The Signs of Love. Love has signs. Discerning eyes are quick to notice them, keen minds to nose them out. The first of these is a compulsion for looking. The eye is the soul's wide gate, minor of its secrets, voice of its far corners, envoy of its depths. You will see the lover's eye, unblinking, move where the beloved moves, withdraw when they withdraw, mirror their every turn as a chameleon does the sun. I have written verses on the subject. My eyes find rest only in you. It's like what they say magnets do. They follow you around the way an adjective bends to its noun. Other signs concern speech. Everything the lover says is directed at the beloved, even when they seem to be addressing someone else. The ruse is easily observed. When the beloved speaks, the lover listens rapt, finds everything they say amazing, however absurd or improbable, believes them when they are lying, agrees with them when they are wrong, will testify in their favor if they have strayed, will follow them whatever turn their talk may take. Then there is haste. The lover rushes to be near the beloved, strives to sit close to them and edges closer, ignores all obligations calling them away, makes light of any matter, however pressing, that would force them to part, is slow to move when the time comes to take their leave. To say it in verse, as captives tread to doom, I leave your side, returning keen as crescents cut the sky, but like a star, I freeze at parting time. Another sign is the excitement and alarm that overcomes the lover when they see the one they love unexpectedly, their agitation when they see someone who resembles the beloved or when they hear their name suddenly pronounced. Oops, sorry. I have put this into verse. My eyes see someone dressed in red and my heart splits in shock. His eyes have spilled enough hot blood to soak and tint the cloth. A man in love is lavish. He gives liberally. He gives what previously he would have said he could not spare. He gives as if he were the one receiving the gift, he the one made happy. All this in order to parade his qualities and make himself desirable. How often has the miser spent it all? The scowler switched to beaming, the coward become bold, the brute turned suave, the sloucher sat up straight, the swine scrubbed up, the yahoo slicked his hair, the sage regained his youth, the hermit lost his head, the chaste gone wild. All these signs are visible, even before the fire of love begins to blaze in earnest, its heat to burn, its flames to leap, its sparks to fly. But when it has taken hold, when there is no dislodging it, 
Then you will see the secret conversations, the turning away from anyone who is not the beloved. I have made verses in which many of these signs are gathered. And I'll end on this poem. I love it when in talk his name comes up, like smelling amber suddenly. And if he speaks, I stop listening to those beside me, occupied with looking only at him, charming, flirting. And if I had with me even the caliph, I would not change course. And if I was forced to go, it would be often turning and stumbling as if wounded and with eyes fixed on him, even as my body pulled away, like when a person drowning turns to face the shore. And I go down, remembering how far he is, like someone caught in soft, wet ground or fire and slowly dying. And if you ask if there is hope for heaven, there is, and I know the way up. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.